races have been called and those endorsed by former President Donald Trump fared very well. Kerry Lake clinched the GOP nomination for governor and will go head-to-head with Democrat Katie Hobbs. Blake Masters will face off with incumbent Mark Kelly for a seat in the U.S. Senate. And in the Secretary of State's race, Republican and notorious conspiracy theorist Mark Fincham will face off with Adrian Fontes, the former Maricopa County recorder and a Democrat. So what does this say about Arizona's electorate as we head into November? Are Trump Republicans primed to take hold in our state? Or will the majority of Arizonans turn to Democrats in the fall? Welcome to The Gaggle, an Arizona Republic and AZ Central politics podcast. Each week we sit down with reporters, experts, and special guests to unpack the latest political news and how it affects you. I'm Ron Hansen. I cover national politics for the Arizona Republic. In today's episode, we're setting the table for the midterm elections. We'll talk about how voter choices in the primaries will help determine what happens in November. To get us started, we're joined by Republic reporters Ray Stern and Stacey Barchinger, who covered the legislature and gubernatorial races. Welcome back, guys. Hey, thanks. The Arizona primary turned out to be a pretty good one for Donald Trump. His preferred candidates won nearly all their races, really. But is that a double-edged sword? Will that inhibit Republican prospects in the fall when we have independents voting more fully, Democrats certainly participating directly against them? That's what we want to talk about here for a bit. Ray, you covered one of the state legislative races that really kind of encapsulated both the depth of Trump's involvement and also the mood of GOP voters. Of course, I'm thinking of the East Valley race with House Speaker Rusty Bowers and David Farnsworth for a seat in the state Senate. You spoke at length with Bowers. What did he say after the loss? Well, he, for one thing, said that he doesn't think that he's part of the party anymore. They censured him for alleged infractions, like not being as strong on election security as as they wanted him to be and as Trump wanted him to be, but also some other things too, like he was a proponent for adding gay and lesbian rights to the anti-discrimination laws in Arizona. Like right now, you can actually legally discriminate against gay people uh, in housing and employment. And so that would ban it. Bowers took a uh, risk by doing that. He had a Democrat uh, co-sponsor. And so things like that um, really angered a lot of Republicans, especially the people on the hard right. So after the election, where he was really trounced uh, with like a two to one majority for David Farnsworth, his opponent. And so he was worried about the future of the Republican Party here in Arizona. This race kind of was a fight for the soul of the Republican Party. Um, you have two very similar candidates, both very you know strong conservatives. The East Mesa voters know them very well. They're both Mormons. They even went to the same school together. But there's this really bright dividing line that they have. Farnsworth is a Trump-endorsed candidate who believes that the 2020 election was just full of fraud and Trump should have uh, won. And Rusty Bowers, of course, famously stopped the Trump team from trying to overturn the election in 2020. And it's difficult to understand exactly where uh, we would have been if it wasn't for him to basically stop the demands to go out of his bounds for for what was legal even and attempt to decertify this election. Just to uh, end that thought here, he kind of, like when I asked him about the slate of Republicans that were elected in the primary, he said, ay, ay, ay. Um, and 
you know, that said a lot. But I also asked him, well, what do you think about Republicans who maybe don't really like this Trump train that they're supposed to do, like you? And he said it's it's a very difficult decision. And he didn't say that he would definitely vote for Democrats, but he implied that, you know, some races might not be worth voting for. Stacey, there was a similar sort of choice in the gubernatorial primary for Republicans. Karen Taylor Robeson had money. Carrie Lake had Trump. Was that all she really needed in the end? I mean, I think in a very close race like this, kind of everything matters. You know, the vote ended up being split by like four and a half points, which is really pretty close. And Carrie Lake obviously aligned herself with Donald Trump, but Karen Taylor Robeson didn't go the way of Rusty Bowers. I mean, she's not out there criticizing the former president. She was very careful about how she handled him and his enduring influence on Republican voters. You know, when we asked her about the 2020 election, she never said that Joe Biden won. It was always she thought that it wasn't fair and she would talk about Hunter Biden's laptop and a media cover up and, you know, never really came out and criticized the former president, never acknowledged Biden's win. And also, you know, in conversations would tout her fundraising for the former president. So a very different handling in the Bowers and Farnsworth race. And then you add $20 million of money that she and outside groups spent. She started relatively unknown to voters. And so that was money really spent. So people knew who she was. And Carrie Lake came into the race with people already knowing her from being on Fox 10. So had to spend a lot of money to catch up. But we'll see what happens in November. I think things take a turn now as we start looking forward about how Trump plays into the race. Ray, apart from Bowers, voters also tossed out a good handful of state lawmakers uh, in other races. Who are some of the other notables uh, who ended up getting the boot? In the Senate, there was Kelly Townsend. She was probably the most uh, prominent person besides uh, Bowers who got the boot. And she had a race against Wendy Rogers, who raised more money than really anybody has seen in a legislative election before. She raised over $3 million, mostly from outside sources, outside the state of Arizona. And she easily beat Townsend. So now Townsend, who decided that she wouldn't run for Congress, uh, has to figure out what she's doing with her political career at this point. And then in the House, I, I just wanted to mention, too, there were some interesting Democrat losses as well. Cesar Chavez is one of the notable ones. He is a three-term or was a three-term legislator. He still is uh, till the end of the year. And surprisingly, Ana Hernandez, who is a sort of grassroots Democratic activist, progressive her brother was shot and killed by Phoenix police. It's obviously a, a huge issue in her life. And she made that part of her campaign. She also had the support of Arizona Poder, which is a local sort of immigrant and uh, criminal justice group. She actually uh, beat Cesar in that race. So if Donald Trump was the X factor in Republican primaries, is there any kind of through line with the Democratic primaries? Is there anything that really kind of helped explain how voters landed on the nominees that they've chosen? there is, it seems to have gotten more progressive, which is kind of ironic in a year where the Trump Republicans did so well. Maybe this is part of the backlash, I don't know. But it's, it's really not all connected to 2022. This is a frustration that a lot of Democrats have had for years in some of these districts where they see that some lawmakers may be not as progressive as they would like to see. So, I mean, they're all somewhat progressive, but they're not out there talking about defunding police and pushing back on the uh, border security and things like that, like, like some people want to see. So there were a few districts. And another one that I would say that was interesting where we saw progressive get in, 
uh, is District 24. That's actually Cesar Chavez's uh, District 2. But so in the House of Representatives, Annalise Ortiz was victorious there. The other mixed bag here is that there were a few sort of more traditional Democrats that got in as well. So in, in that same district, Lydia Hernandez, who's a former lawmaker and less progressive, I would say, than, than some of the others got in, as well as former lawmaker Catherine Miranda in one of the uh, Phoenix districts. I will make a note here that Blake Masters, the Trump pick in the U.S. Senate race, cruised to an easy victory. In the U.S. House races, Trump endorsed Eli Crane, defeated State Representative Walt Blackman in a northeastern Arizona race where the endorsement might well have been decisive. And in the Phoenix and Tempe area, Republican Kelly Cooper pulled a minor upset by defeating Tanya Wheelis, who seemed more of the establishment favorite in that race. Cooper pitched himself as a Trump Republican. She said he was barely a Republican, but he ended up winning. So help us sort of take a step back from all of this. Stacy. clearly it was a good night for the Trump-style Republicans. Ray just talked about some of the more progressive candidates who have had success in the Democratic primary. Seems like we've got some really sharp contrasts now heading into November. How does this start to sort itself out as we hear that both sides go after the others. I think we're at a point where Arizona voters are going to signal what they want the leadership of this state to look like. And as we've already seen in the primaries, in particular in the legislature, we've ended up on more partisan opposites in some ways with these candidates the divide between Democrats and Republicans already would have been vast in the governor's race just based on policy. But I think you also have this other element of going into November with Carrie Lake versus Katie Hobbs, you're really going to see a test of how Arizonans view Donald Trump. We talked about that a lot during the primary, but of course, we're only talking about Republican voters. Carrie Lake won 47 percent of Republican voters. So she's got to win over the other 50% of those people and independents and deal with this sort of referendum on Trump who lost in 2020. One of the things that we've sort of seen play throughout the year is this generally favorable dynamic for Republicans that has played out amid very high gas prices and high prices for a lot of consumer goods all year. Really, the Biden administration seems to have been on roller skates for much of the year and not able to put forward a lot of legislative achievements. That's kind of changed in recent weeks. The Biden administration has seen progress on things like gun-related legislation. We've also now seen prospects for legislation that will try to mitigate climate change and also provide more assistance for those on Medicare. We also are seeing gas prices receding a bit to more tolerable levels. Does this really kind of change the dynamics in any way that really will alter how competitive some of these races will be? Let's start in the statehouse, Ray. Is there anything that looks better now for Democrats or, uh, or, or is their fate sealed that it's just a Republican year? I definitely don't think their fate is sealed. What's going on in D.C. definitely could play a role in that. It's a long time be, uh, between now and November, though, and so there's just so much going on that, that Biden's poll numbers are absolutely in the toilet right now. So he's got a really long way to go. Things like this new climate bill that passed, maybe it will garner support for Democrats. 
I think it also has uh, new restrictions for oil and gas companies. So maybe that could have a negative effect. We'll see what happens there. But I think the split in the Republican Party is probably one of the biggest problems for the Republicans right now. There are not only some Republicans, as you just mentioned, Stacey, that still haven't decided, maybe at least in the primary, whether Kerry Lake is their candidate, but then there's this massive group of independents as well. And a lot of those are disillusioned Republicans, and they're disillusioned because of what they saw with Trump in a lot of cases. And so it may take some convincing that they should vote for this slate of uh, very hardcore Trump Republicans instead of Democrats, you know, and, and make sure they get out and vote, period. You know, one of the people I was really watching, Ray, when you talk about this, like, where do these establishment Republicans land is Governor Ducey. I mean, he came out for him, very critical of Carrie Lake, endorsed Karen Taylor Robeson. And so, you know, after last Tuesday, I was calling his office, pestering them to see when he would, you know, say something publicly about where he lands. And finally happened over the weekend. It was very um, measured, I think. He cited his role leading the Republican Governors Association and that organization's, you know, more than $10 million commitment to elect a Republican. And he said, congratulations to Kerry. It was a hard fought victory and all of the candidates. And we are already here to get her elected. So I think Kerry Lake has said she will not pivot. She is not going to change her campaign style to try to appeal to these independents and moderate Republicans at the same time. I know she's having meetings trying to bring this coalition on board in her support. And I think you will see some of these Republicans at least aligning with her just because of the shared conservative values. You know, they see Katie Hobbs as very opposite of that for her stance on economic issues, on the border, on abortion, which we should certainly talk about as a, as a factor in November. So let's do that now. Abortion is on the table after the Supreme Court erased Roe v. Wade and the federal right to an abortion. This is something that is presumed to help democratic energy across the country. Of course, we saw voters in Kansas also maintain the right to address abortion rights through their state constitution. Are there any races in Arizona where abortion figures to play an outsized role in settling the contest? Well, I think the first one that comes to mind is the attorney general's race. Abraham uh, Hamaday, he is already going into this with, a, with somewhat of a disadvantage because of his lack of experience. But then we've got the abortion issue there, and there's a very black and white choice between Hamaday and uh, Chris Mays, who's the Democrat running now. And she basically said that she won't even enforce a total ban on abortion. I think it'll be an issue also in the governor's race because our candidates are just so on opposite ends of the spectrum of what they believe the law should be. I don't know if it'll be decisive, but I know both candidates are looking at suburban women voters that they might be able to appeal in their direction because of the uncertainty over abortion. I can't help but think of the Maricopa County attorney's race where Julie Gunnigal in 2020 tried to make a major issue out of abortion rights and the future of abortion rights when the loss of abortion rights protections at the federal level was more theoretical. Here we have it now moving into the 2022 election, and this once again could play a very prominent role in her messaging. The question is whether among county voters that is decisive. Does it change the overall mood of voters from that that has been leaning to Republicans to something where they're more amenable to someone who's been a pretty progressive Democrat for a while now? 
Okay. So, Ray, you brought up a really interesting point about experience in the attorney general's race, but it's not the only one where that's been an issue. Stacey, we see that in the secretary of state's race where state representative Mark Fincham has never been an elections official. He is the GOP nominee running against the Maricopa County recorder during the 2020 election, whose work was picked over to the nth degree, came out pretty clean out of all of it. He is the Democratic nominee in Adrian Fontes. We also see it with Carrie Lake, someone who comes from a journalism background, running against Democrat Katie Hobbs, who has been in state government for a while now. How much is experience going to help Democrats? How much is it going to be a boon to Republicans that, hey, this is not the crowd that's always been in office? I think it's going to work both ways. You already see Democratic candidates running on their experience. You didn't mention it, but certainly the Senate race is another example where you have Blake Masters, who doesn't have elected experience up against Mark Kelly, who is obviously still in the politics world, fairly new to it, but has a couple of years under his belt. I think you'll see Katie Hobbs. This is just the race I know best, so I always come back to it. But you'll see her run on her experience and you'll see Carrie Lake run on her lack of experience. And I think that's a powerful thing. When I'm out at rallies talking to Carrie Lake supporters, they really like that she is not entrenched in politics here, that she will take on the establishment as she has done, that she is sort of a breath of fresh air and a signal of change for what's to come. Right. And, you know, I think that in a secretary of state's race, that's sort of an example where experience may play a, a greater role than governor, potentially, uh, where people are thinking, we want someone who actually knows something about elections. Um, of course, you want someone who knows something about leading the state, but there's this like dual theme that's going on here, as you mentioned, where it's going to hurt some candidates and help others. I do think like the attorney general race is potentially one where, where it could help Chris Mays because she does have a lot more experience as a former corporation commissioner. But then there's this factor of there's no question that that uh, Republicans, especially and Democrats too, as I mentioned, um, are interested in seeing a new crop of people out there. They want to change things up. And so also in Arizona, Republican attorney generals usually do better. So Abe doesn't have a disadvantage there. But I also wanted to mention that when we look at the legislature, the lack of experience in some of these Trump candidates is striking. You basically have a whole bunch of people that have no political experience, and they are about ideas. And usually it's this Trump theme that they're going for. So that raises a question of who's going to be focusing on the business of government when the legislature starts, because it's not just all about politics. They actually help run the state. And they decide important things like how much money should go to education and what we should do about the water shortage problem. There is a problem right now when you look at the slate of candidates in the legislature for who is going to deal with some of these serious problems. And I thought it was telling that David Farnsworth, basically, when I asked him about this, just admitted right away that, that he does not know as much as someone uh, like Rusty Bowers. And so he would bring Rusty Bowers in for the hearings that he plans to have on water. That would be a very interesting <laughs> meeting <laughs> to be continued. Thank you both for sharing your insights as to what to make of the primaries as we now pivot to the fall. If folks want to follow your work on Twitter, Ray, where can they find you? Just go to at Ray Stern. And Stacy. At S. Barchinger, and I'll have to spell it out. I don't have a name like Ray Stern. Um, so that's S as in Stacy, B as in boy, A-R-C-H-E-N-G-E-R.
Hi, Gaggle listeners. Producer Kaylee Monahan here. Do you have questions about Arizona's political landscape? Maybe you're new to the Valley and want a better understanding of the main players in our state. We want to hear from you. Leave us a voicemail at 602-444-0804. That's 602-444-0804. You can also email us your questions to thegaggle at arizonarepublic.com. And don't forget to download the AZ Central app to stay up to date on all the news in our state. Now back to the episode. Now we turn to take a 32,000-foot look at what these winds mean as we head into November. Here to parse through all this is Rachel Dean Wilson. She's the head of external affairs at the Alliance for Securing Democracy, a nonpartisan initiative that works to protect democratic processes from eroding worldwide. Previously, she worked for the late Senator John McCain as his communication director and as the advisor to his 2016 re-election campaign. Rachel, welcome to The Gaggle. Hey, Ron. Thanks so much for having me. So I wanted to get your thoughts on a a couple of things here for the midterm elections here in Arizona and, and get a sense of how this fits into what we're seeing nationally as well. Arizona, like some other states, has gone with a decidedly pro-Trump Republican slate. We've seen this with the Senate nominee in Blake Masters, Carrie Lake, the gubernatorial nominee, and with Mark Fincham, the Secretary of State nominee. All three of those folks have, in various ways, sort of endorsed the idea of the 2020 election being stolen or not legitimate in varying ways. How much have these kinds of candidates really been able to break through and win across the country in their primary elections to this point? Yeah. So, I mean, these candidates in Arizona definitely aren't unique, but they also are, it's not what we're seeing across the board. What I think is unique about Arizona is that it was like a clean sweep of candidates who had endorsed the big lie and and really not only just kind of paid it lip service, but made that a centerpiece of their campaign. That is very unique. And then the foil to that is what we saw in Georgia, which obviously was center stage during the efforts to overturn the 2020 election. And Brad Raffensperger there was the Secretary of State. He ran for re-election for the nomination and was re-elected, even though he came under attack by Trump himself after in the wake of the 2020 election. And so, you know, you have Arizona on one side fully embracing Uh, the big lie in this election denialism. And then Georgia on the other side, taking a step back. And so it's really interesting to watch those two states uh, and how divergent they are. And then I think the rest of of America is somewhere in the middle. It's interesting that you would mention the contrast with Georgia. If we rewind to 2020, Georgia and Arizona were the two closest states in the country. Both of them are relatively new in terms of being politically competitive. Traditionally, both have been Republican-leaning states uh, for a number of cycles in the presidential elections. So what is it about Arizona, do you think, that made Arizonans on the Republican side go all in for the Trump slate versus, you know, some different results uh, defying him on a couple of their races? Yeah, I I mean, I can only make my... You know, my most educated guess here, I think if we had the answer to that, then I I would be like the crystal ball person for, for all of the elections and the electorate. 
But I know, having worked on McCain's campaign in 2016, uh, or advising his campaign, and then I worked for him in the Senate in 2010, there's always been that very far-right stream in Arizona um, and within the Republican Party. So in 2010, we ran against J.D. Hayward. In 2016, it was Kelly Ward. And we had always knew that that was something that ran strong within the Republican Party, but it, it was never the full force and base of the Arizona Republican Party. And I think in 2016 and throughout his presidency, Donald Trump really legitimized that piece of the Republican Party in a way that was uh, really emboldened that part of it here in Arizona. That's just a little a little sliver of the picture, but you're right, it, it couldn't have been more different between the directions the two states went. Republican voters, at least here in Arizona, don't seem especially focused on the truth of 2020 and the claims made by some of these candidates, obviously. They seem to like the loyalty to Trump and the fighting spirit that these candidates all seem to bring. What about other kinds of voters, though, across the country and anything that you may know about Arizona voters right now, for folks who aren't Republicans, do they give these folks a pass on the election integrity claims? Is it not a central issue? Is it high on their list or how, how do they puzzle it out? So one of the things that is so, that, you know, politics, there are lots of blurry lines. Uh, there are lots of different opinions about issues, uh, and those can kind of get crosswise or a little smudged during a campaign. But I think where we have to draw a red line is around the actual integrity of our elections, and that that actually should concern every voter, because if our elections are not safe and secure, if they are fraudulent, then that actually undermines our democracy as a whole. And so we can't really fully debate the other issues if we don't believe that at the end of the day, this is a fair process. So I want to hover over that election process for a moment in the context of the Secretary of State's race here in Arizona. Right now, we have a very stark contrast, it seems, in the two nominees. We see Mark Fincham, a Republican from Oro Valley who has been in the state House of Representatives. He was Outside the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, there's no evidence that he went inside, but clearly he was participating at least on the grounds of the Capitol. He was someone who was trying to help deliver the fake electors to the Trump plan to try and sidestep official results. He's running against Adrian Fontes, the Democrat from Maricopa County, who oversaw the election that was sort of picked over probably closer than any election I can think of, not named Florida 2000. And the results were essentially affirmed by the Republican Cyber Ninjas organization. The contrast here is very striking. And I, I guess what I wanted to get from you, what are the stakes of someone like Mark Fincham, who has leaned in hard on what you described as the big lie? for normal voters moving forward. Is this just a campaign thing or, or does this pose a real threat moving forward? It, it is a real threat. I mean, the idea of someone who fundamentally distrusts the election system, who has put um, an ideology or a conspiracy theory above the democratic process and definitely above facts, would then oversee the state's election is just one that should be concerning to any citizen of any political stripe, 
And I do think in the role of Secretary of State, you have power to actually impact elections and how those elections are administered. And so once you have someone who isn't going to play by the rules, doesn't even believe in the rules in that position, I think we get into really problematic territory. So talk about how it is that they can manipulate results, because I think this is one of the important considerations for folks as they try and figure this out. Mark Fincham would, as Secretary of State, oversee the 15 county recorders results and and sort of rolling that up into the state's final results. But those counties individually administer their own elections. So what is it that the Secretary of State can do that would really pose an operational threat, as you see it, to fair elections? Well, I think there are several different things. First, I mean, just on the messaging front, if you have a secretary of state who is messaging about how elections are not to be trusted, that there will be widespread fraud, that the results may not be the results, uh, that in and of itself can depress turnout. It can definitely undermine trust in democracy and in our elected officials. Um, so on the messaging front, like that in and of itself, given a microphone on that, that level uh, is impactful. There's also with ways that the Secretary of State could impact those different counties and supplies or logistics, how the, they're actually running and supporting uh, these elections. And, and not to mention, okay, if he finds like-minded people at the end of this election, if they're working together on election outcomes that they don't like. I mean, it shouldn't be subjective, right? <laughs> Democracy should not be subjective. That's one of the great things about campaigns. Uh, and I've always said this is that there's an end date. And that's good for people working on campaigns. That's good for the candidates. And there has to be an end date. It has to be a final decision so that our democracy can function, so that everyone can move on. And if you didn't win, you get ready for next year or the next two years. And when we lose that, I mean, we're still talking about 2020. It is 2022. It's not the sign of a healthy democracy. We need to be able to move forward together in order to really function. Very good. Well, Rachel, thank you so much for joining us today. If our listeners want to follow your work, where can they find you on Twitter? Yeah, my Twitter handle is at Rachel Dean, and that's R-A-C-H-A-E-L-D-E-A-N. That is it for today, Gaggle listeners. Do you have questions about Arizona's political landscape? Well, we want to hear from you. Send us a message at thegaggle at arizonarepublic.com. That's one word, all spelled out. Or leave us a voicemail at 602-444-0804. And don't forget to rate and review our show and share it with a friend. If you want to reach out to me on Twitter, I'm at Ronald J. Hansen. That's H-A-N-S-E-N. Today's episode was edited and produced by Kaylee Monahan. You can follow her at Kaylee Monahan. That's K-A-E-L-Y-M-O-N-A-H-A-N. Thanks for listening to The Gaggle, a podcast from the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com. We'll see you next week. Music